Growing a brand is never easy. It takes forethought, commitment, perseverance, and the strength to will it to fruition. In the case of today's guest, the strength to will it into a mug in the form of premium coffee. On the Business Buffet, we're constantly talking about staying consistent with your brand down to every detail. Tom O'Keefe founded Tully's Coffee and was a man so closely associated with the operation that his middle name is the company's name, Tully's. He will talk about the challenges of taking on the industry leader, Starbucks, as well as ways in which he has given back to the community in this ingredients episode of The Business Buffet. Welcome to another episode of The Business Buffet Ingredients, where we ask the experts questions that serve up a business and life-growing feast. Pull up a chair and get ready to eat hearty in business because The Business Buffet is now open. Welcome back to the ingredients episode of The Business Buffet. I am Phil Anderson, and back in the early 90s, 1992, Tom O'Keefe was a successful real estate developer who was approached about leasing a space to Starbucks for a coffee store in one of his shopping centers. Realizing that no one was competing with Starbucks, O'Keefe, who had a lifelong love of coffee and an interest in specialty foods, decided to develop a business plan to start his own coffee company. Six months later, Tolly's was in business. Tolly's quickly developed into a strong regional specialty coffee retailer that was concentrated in the Puget Sound area where coffee loyalty is so deep. There is one coffee shop for every 4,000 people. And by 2000, Tolly's was building a strong brand and getting noticed. In 2006, Tully's focus was no longer on competing against Starbucks, but on serving handcrafted coffee in its local Seattle area retail coffee shops. The company had franchises and grocery chain coffee shops in the United States and Asia. Although there were roadblocks that Tully's eventually ran into, we will talk about the successes as well. I know the Tully's story fairly intimately, as in the mid-90s, my brother-in-law and I had a design and construction company, and we turned three different coffee shops in and around the Seattle area into Tully's Coffee Shops. I was always impressed with the detail around the build-out, and our guest today was the architect of that vision. Not only that, he's a musician. Tom O'Keefe is always ready with a story or funny anecdote. He jokes that his idea of a focus group is to gather friends and employees for a dinner party and ask them their opinions after a few martinis and a couple bottles of wine. I love that sort of focus group. He's long been a major Seattle philanthropist, showering his money and support on organizations that fight diseases, ranging from cystic fibrosis to juvenile diabetes. When talking about business with O'Keefe, you quickly realize he's a charming throwback to the handshake is my bond kind of businessman. He is famous for his boundless energy, tireless work ethic, and nocturnal emails. It seems as though he has made deals with half of the business people in Seattle and worked charitable events with the other half. In short, he knows just about everyone. With gratitude, I am pleased to welcome Tom Tolly O'Keefe into the Business Buffet Kitchen to disclose and share some of his business ingredients with us. Hello, Tom. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Phil. Nice to uh, be here to chat with you today. There are plenty of uh, people that have started businesses and brands that have their name attached to it. 
but yours is a little bit more stealth. How much time did you spend before settling on your middle name as the name of the company? Well, actually, uh, there's a good story, as there is for every name of a company, one way or the other, anything sure. that goes to the focus group. I actually was trying to get something name-wise that was non-regional specific, didn't mean a dirty word in Japanese, uh, was easy to pronounce, and uh, would be kind of fun. And the ad agency I hired, uh, two guys, Dale Cohen, Austin Dwyer, a Jewish guy and an Irish guy, good friends of mine. Uh, I told them that, and they threw up their hands and says, oh, Keith, we don't know what you're talking about. Well, before I knew it, I had come up with two or three samples of names, samples of names, and I picked Tully, and Tully's is one of them. And about two weeks later, and $10,000 worth of uh, so-called creative work on their part, uh, to this day, I still think it was $9,900 of, of profit and $100 of creative work. Right. They, uh, uh, they came back to me and said, Tommy, me boy, Austin Dwyer, the half of the partnership, says, we think Tully's is the best name for you. And I said, flabbergasted. I said, guys, I, that, that's the name I gave you as a sample, an idea for how I define coming up with a name. And they said, well, we know that, but you're still going to pay us. And they all laughed. And, <laughs> and, uh, and they said, well, where'd it come from? I said, well, it's my middle name. And Austin Dwyer said, Tommy, me boy, Thomas Tully O'Keefe, you can't get any more Irish than that. And I said, well, actually, it's the owner that left Tellius O'Keefe. I'm named after my uncle Tully, who happens to be my mother's brother, and he's 100% Greek. Oh my and with gosh. that, my Jewish buddy jumped up, hugged me, and he says, I knew you were one of us. Ah, there you go, right? <laughs> that's funny. Of course, it's going to be that price tag on something that's already there, right? Exactly. Your branding of Tully's was very intentional. I, I remember your lobby, the ambiance, your, your copy, really everything. Talk to us a little bit about what went into all of those decisions regarding your branding. Sure. Well, the first part, of course, is uh, what, what were we trying to produce and sell? And that was coffee. And so uh, being a coffee, uh, I don't want to say snob, but being a coffee aficionado, sure. uh, the way it was, because I drank coffee when I was three years old at home. We had toast and coffee. My mother being a Greek, that was a typical breakfast. Uh, we knew we wanted to focus on the coffee first. And the second experience was, well, uh, we want to focus on what is the customer experience in the store? Uh, the third element was, how did the customer interact with our people? So we looked at it and we said, hey, this is great. Uh, we've got the product, we've got the people, and we've got the store. And we did one of those infamous, uh, I've done many and I continue to, uh, focus groups where uh, two or three bottles of wine, a few vodkas, uh, sat around my dinner table and I picked everybody's brains. And, and I said, uh, so what do you guys think uh, it ought to be? We've got three points of difference, our product, our people, and our stores. And our stores, incidentally, when I say that, it was soft furniture. These are back in the early days of Starbucks where they only had little round stools that they really wanted you to only sit there for three minutes and then get the hell out of the office or out of the store. And we wanted soft seating. And in fact, I brought uh, fireplaces into my stores before anybody even thought about it. And, and during one of these dinners, uh, when I was going on and on about the three points of difference, my wife looked at me and she said, you know, it's really four points of difference. I said, well, what do you mean? She says, well, it's our product. You know, we want it to be a dark roasted flavor profile, but we don't, certainly don't want it to be a burnt roasted profile, which is what, you know, our, those other guys are getting a bad rap for. Number two, we want our people to be conversational and friendly and know people's first names and make their drink when they see them getting out of their car. And we do want the stores to be not like our living room, as we think about it with our parents. The living room was for a formal event, formal attire. 
it, we want it to be like our family room as we grew up. And so come on, sit in the family room, put your leg over the chair arm and, and kind of sit back and have a cup of coffee and uh, chat with us. But she said, there's a fourth point of difference in what our lives mean. I said, what, what do you mean? She says, well, it's what we do in the community. And we had young children at the time. And so we said, you know, it's, it's everything that happens. We were fortunate, still are, that our three children who are now uh, in their 30s uh, were very healthy. We had a lot of friends who did not have children that were very healthy. And uh, that's how we started with a bunch of other couples, the patrons of cystic fibrosis, and then ultimately, five years later, the Juvenile Diabetes Guild of Seattle. And so she says, uh, so that fourth point of difference is what we do in the community. And so I said, all right, so let's, let's restate this now. Let's, let's start at the beginning. But before I do, let's open up another bottle of red. And a good red now, not a, not a cheap red. There you go. So, uh, no yellowtail in this. <laughs> exactly. And so it was uh, our coffee, our product our people in the stores, our stores in terms of that casual atmosphere and what we do in the community, people, products, stores, and community. And so those four points of difference were nailed before we opened the first store. And uh, a little uh, digression for a moment. Years later, I had somebody say to me, well, oh, that fourth point of difference, that's just cause marketing. And he was being a little cynical about it. And, and that was kind of a, a concept for marketing purposes. And I said, well, I suppose it is, but and, and the phrase you use is perfect, cause marketing. And I said, you know why we do it? Because it's the, it's the right thing to do. So it is, it's because marketing. And uh, I, I believe that as it relates to our relationship with our customers. And I believe that as it relates even more importantly with our relationship with our employees, because they felt pretty good about working for a company that was that committed to doing all of those things well. Yeah, good for you on that. I, I'll tell you, Sometimes we as consumers get really suspicious uh, when you see a company so-called doing the right thing to the, for the community and the world uh, because there's ulterior motives, right? Uh, when you can actually live by example that aspect, uh, not cause marketing, but because marketing, that's really uh, impressive. And you have continued that to this day. Is that correct? That's, that's correct, yeah. Yeah, good for you. Uh, so what would you say, as we talk a little bit more expanding on the branding aspect, what are the three most important aspects of a strong brand, in your opinion? Well, I, 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 I may have 40 or 50 answers to that, and I'll try to keep it to three. <laughs> um, you know, the absolute number one thing you have to do is you have to build it with great integrity. Before you can even begin marketing, so-called marketing a brand, or branding an entity, in this case a coffee company, you have to build the brand premise on actual integrity and integrity of the product, integrity of the people, integrity of the stores and what we did in the community, in our case, the four points of difference. And if you didn't do that, if you kind of, you know, when you're selling somebody a product in the store or coffee uh, and, and you kind of chuckled after they said, this is the best coffee I ever had, well, that kind of breaks that relationship and that honesty and the genuine nature of, of, of the brand and to go chuckle and just say, well, I pulled the wool over their eyes, didn't I? Yeah. Uh, so you have to build that into your HR program, into your hiring process. You certainly, in our case, had to build it into the roasting process to make sure that we did the right things from a roasting standpoint. And I can tell you specifically that we probably paid more than we had to pay as it relates to the price per green coffee bean. Right. Uh, and, you know, we're offered, as many people are in all types of businesses, a less expensive product, you know, that, that still could do the job. And that wasn't our methodology. What we said was, you know what, we're going to stay true to the brand. We're going to maintain the integrity and only sell 
the high quality Arabica's in our case, in the coffee business and nothing else. So this is a question that I just thought of. I did not send this to you, so you don't have to answer it. Well, I'll try, to, I'll try to equally respond with a spontaneous answer. As a business owner, it's kind of common thought. You don't want to have a good relationship with your competitors, right? I, I don't agree with that. I don't understand it. Mondavi did a, 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 it was a great model down in Napa in the in those 70s and 80s when he was trying to bring everybody in because uh if one winery does well really it lifts everybody up right all boats rise exactly what is your relationship with howard schultz well it started out uh, a bit tenuous Mm -hmm. uh because here i was all of a sudden where they made we had five different locations of buildings i owned or projects i owned where they wanted to put stores and next thing you know this this little coffee upstart decides to start his own coffee company and put, put them in his real estate rather than Starbucks. So that, that made it tenuous. Um, and then, you know, I learned in college, uh, you know, as advertising major, I learned in college that you don't try to position yourself away from the, the leader. And there's no doubt about it. Starbucks was then and continues to be today the leader, the sure. category. But you, you brandish, or I should say, uh, uh, you you uh, shine your own brand if you equate your brand, your company name, uh, with the number one guy. And so I worked very hard, and this is going to be a roundabout way to answer your question, but I worked sure. very hard to position with the press and with the public and with the customers that they would say, well, I'm not going to go to Starbucks, I'm going to go to Tully's, rather than Starbucks Coffee Company or Tully's Coffee Corporation, even Tully's Coffee by itself. You know, I wanted them to say, yeah, we're going to go to Tully's. And everybody knew what that was. It was a Kleenex. It was an alternative Kleenex to Starbucks, but it, it was a generic uh, category reference. Everybody knew where they were going with just the Tully's. They didn't need the coffee. Uh, number one. Number two, a second component of that is I know from my real estate uh, days and all the development I've done is that, uh, you know, all the smart retailers cluster. And they get on each side of the street. I mean, when you look for a gas station, they're on two or three corners, sometimes four corners. That's right. When you look for uh, a Starbucks, they're on the proper corners, typically on the going to work side because you, you want to have people drink it in the morning. And in Canada, it's, it's infamous now. It's not just famous, it's infamous. They had three corners covered on Robson Street in Vancouver, B.C., uh, where they had three Starbucks stores. And, and a block and a half down the street, they had another one. So... So my deal was they're pretty smart guys. They are focused on getting the right location. Therefore, that must be a good location for us as well. So I said, we're going to put a Tully's next to every Starbucks. That didn't endear me necessarily with, uh, with Howard Schultz. Um, and then I guess over the years, uh, I, I was always incredibly polite, although a jokester, <laughs> but always incredibly polite and even more importantly, always complimentary towards him and what he did, because that's just an incredible story. It you is. Know, it's not an incredible story of the 90s and, and 2000s, the new millennium. It's an incredible business story and continues to be today, even though he's not there, uh, because, uh, uh, you know, they've got such a lead over anybody else. Nobody else is even going to come close to them. You really put Tully's on your shoulders when you started this thing. I mean, you went all all in. So many of our, most of our listeners are small business owners, okay? They're kind of doing everything. There's no one that they can ask advice for, you know, to. How do you handle the fact that you're at the top and there's no one else to answer to or ask for guidance? Well, you know, in my case, it was pretty easy. All the people that worked 
with me, not for me, but with me, uh, I had great confidence in their perspective on what we were trying to do. I said, guys, here's how we're trying to build this business and why and with the integrity and the four points of difference. Now, all of you need to participate in helping to build that business, which is why, incidentally, I made every employee a shareholder. I used my wife's and my stock uh, to reward them rather than take treasury stock to uh, compensate them for extra things. They're very nicely compensated from an hourly standpoint or salary standpoint. But uh, I can recall that uh, at many Christmases that I would call and leave a group voicemail for all the store managers and employees to share with their employees and say, hey, guys, Santa here. And Santa and Mrs. Claus want you to each have 500 shares of stock or whatever the grant may be. And uh, ho, 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 and I'd hang up. And then 15 minutes later after my ex, the next uh, eggnog, I would call them back and say, I really meant 1,000 shares. And I'd hang up. Uh, but, you know, you, you, you got to rely on, on all your employees. And, in fact, you know, uh, one of my favorite sayings in life is you judge a person by how they treat the busboy not how they treat the owner. I not only led and continue to lead my life that way, and in fact, I have more fun with the bus boys sometimes than I do with the owners. They're, of course. They're real people. Uh, but uh, that includes getting advice from them, how we can make it better. So we had a lot of different ways to encourage them to give it great advice to help get it better. But you know what? I, I, I'll tell you, there's something else you need to do uh, to really answer your question. Uh, I had guys uh, in the early days when we thought we'd have one or two stores, I said, hey, let's do this, but for us to do it, we're gonna write a business plan as if we're gonna have 100 stores. And we did write that business plan, and I said, if after you know a year or two, we only have one or two stores, that's okay. We spent a little bit more dough being prepared, but now we're prepared to execute and operate this business, execute a strategy to grow it, and execute a plan to operate it. And it just so happened that uh, we ended up, at least in the United States, while I was running the company, we had up to, I don't know, 135, 140 stores. And then we also had some great success overseas, particularly in Japan, where they still have about 600 stores or 650 stores of Tully's operating there under Tully's Coffee Japan. And so you, 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 know, you kind of just put one foot ahead of the other. They saw me, my, my people, even when we got bigger, saw me sweeping the warehouse, the roasting plant. Uh, a couple times I remember just still to this day, people drop me notes. I can't believe it, but you know, they missed their bus late cause they were hanging around and, and I gave them the keys to my car and I said, Hey, listen, I'll get picked up. You take the car home. You live in federal way. I live on the East side. It's not a big deal. Right. And, uh, a few, uh, 19 year old baristas, uh, found themselves driving down I five to federal way in a Mercedes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And to me, that's kind of fun for them. Great, great, great feeling to know that I trust them that much. So you really use those uh, four points of difference right. as the culture of, of Tully's. And that started from the top and went all the way down. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when, when you initially did your hiring, what was your hiring process? Well, uh, intensive. We had developed a profile, what we thought was going to be the perfect employee in terms of appearance and stature and communication skills and things like that. And honestly, I threw that out on my first interview for the first store. Is that right? Yeah. We had a young lady come in who was 17 and bad makeup and, you know, young gal, she's a teenager and the hair was uh, all over the place and none of her clothes matched. And, but she was a sweetheart. And the woman who had helped me write the business plan said, Oh my God, she's off the list. I said, Oh no, no, you missed something big time. 
this person's a natural born customer service person. You didn't listen to her, you looked at her. And she said to me, well, what do you mean, what do you mean? I said, did you see the fire in her eyes? Right. And uh, she says, well, no. And I said, okay, that's what you gotta look for, the fire in their eyes and the customer service skills, because we can teach anybody how to make a good cup of coffee. We really can, that's, that's you're trainable, right? But you can't teach love and, and uh, communication uh, and uh, empathy service skills. That's right. You just can't, you can't, that, that, that comes naturally. You can't teach that. So how do you write that into the hiring process in what you just described, what you were looking for, that fire, the customer service that comes, uh, uh, all the DNA of good customer service? Yeah, well, the first, you've got to write it in, first of all. And in our case, we re- rewrote that section because we had all these things that were arbitrary and all these things that were superficial, I suppose, mm-hmm. but are like many HR manuals, procedures and policies manuals, where people are just grabbing what they, uh, uh, what they can from HR specialists, the first things to look for. Well, you know, uh, dirty fingernails is an easy one, right? Yeah. You can't go, okay, great, I get that. But, but you need to look into a person's eyes and into their heart to really see what kind of person they are and not what they're wearing. So it truly is the throw the first impressions out because you need to talk to somebody. And this particular young lady we hired, six months later, she became the assistant manager of the store. A year later, she became the manager of the store. A year later, she became a district manager and was managing five stores. About six months later, she took over the training program and the most heartwarming uh, uh, story of my life, really, if you said, t- tell me the top three or four stories of your uh, time you ran this company, only ran the company, I would say this is one of them, where our Japanese licensee said to me, hey, we need to bring her over to Japan to train our people too. And I said, great, I'm thrilled with that. I'm thrilled. And that was back in the days where you could walk to the gate with somebody and not get on the plane with them. You know, you right. I remember that. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, her parents were there and uh, she was there and she was excited. And I said, well, here we go. You, you excited about this trip? Oh yeah. Yeah. Mr. O'Keefe. Yeah. Mr. O'Keefe. Well, great. I'm excited. You're representing us. And, and uh, you get your passport. Okay. Right. Cause she didn't oh. have a passport and it was, Oh, they'll fabulous. I just got my passport. My picture's no good here. Let me show it to you. Well, no, it's a good picture. Don't worry about it. It's like, like we all are with our driver's licenses. Exactly. Right? And, uh, and I said, so uh, I know you've probably been out of the country before, but it's probably to Canada or to Mexico on trips and things. So she goes, well, well, no, I actually have never been out of the country. Wow. And a this kind is of a cold person. sweat came over me and a shiver. And I went, well, well, you, you've been like around the United States, right? She goes, well, no, I've never been out of the state, state of Washington. I've never this been out of the got plane. A true story. This is so remarkable and so amazing. And I said, so uh, I'm going to guess this is your first plane ride too. She says, absolutely. I'm so excited to fly to Japan and represent this company. And I had this moment of 10 seconds where I didn't know whether to faint uh, or, or what to do. And this calm came over me and I can feel it every time I tell the story. This calm came over me because I knew this gal had fire in her eyes and she was going to represent us better than anybody I knew. She spent a week in Japan, flew into Tokyo. She was the belle of the ball. They all love this gal. And she went back a couple of times after that. And, uh, it just, you know, that, that as a business owner, uh, you know, kind of like when you're a parent, you see your children, yeah. do that. but as a business owner, when you can see one of your people excel at that level, it's pretty cool. You know, it sometimes it's okay what you don't know you don't know, right? Yeah, right. Uh, and sometimes people get panicked, but you know, somebody that really has such strong conviction that look, I'm gonna knock this out of the park. I have a lot yeah. of responsibility. I'm gonna make this good. 
Uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. She was not fearful. She was not concerned. She even about getting on an airplane for the first time and flying, you know, 10 and a half hours over, nine and a half back, nothing. Getting in a country where nobody spoke English. Uh, it's absolutely incredible. I'm, I'm so, to this moment, I'm just incredibly amazed with her. But there's another 10, 50 stories like that, you know, sure. which is one of the cool parts of owning a business. Yeah, you're, you're right about that. Tom, so how do you measure success? What, what's the Tom O'Keefe uh, success measuring bar? What does that look like? Well, you, you know, candidly, it was different when I started versus when I had to bring on a full independent board. Uh, and I'll tell you about that kind of start and transition. So when you start, you want to make sure that you're true to all your values. Uh, in our case, uh, the product, the people, the stores, and what we did in the community. And I'd like to come back to what we do in the community because I've got some parent uh, stories. Yeah, uh, for sure. Employee stories, which are pretty cool. Uh, and, and you know, you, you don't go into business to not make money, so you got to make money. You know, although in the early years it was uh, – Okay, uh, we're going to make money, but we're also going to train people. We're going to be uh, big participants in the community. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, when you become to a certain size and you bring investors on board, you realize that the, your mission statement changes a little bit. It, it goes from running the business with great clarity and, and great integrity. And then the next one is uh, hiring great employees and training them for their future. And then the next one is to make a profit. And then as soon as you bring partners or investors on board, right at the top, it's make a profit. Because without a profit, you're not going anywhere. So that's a balancing act for most new young business people. If they have this approach to business we did, where we certainly wanted to be profitable and make money. But at the same time, we wanted to do all those other things that were valuable in life. The parent stories are really kind of fun, if you don't mind me digressing for a moment. The parent stories are pretty cool. Uh, I can't tell you how many parents, I was going to say 10 or 20, but I, I can't tell you how many parents over the, the uh, eight years or 10 years or so that I ran the business day to day who came up to me and they said, what, what did you do to my kid? And I said, whoa, 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 what do you mean? What I do to your kid? You know, that, well, what'd you do to my kid? I mean, they're, they're coming home. They're talking to us now. They sit at the table and they're, they're, they're having a communication. They're asking us about their, their grandparents. What's in your coffee? <laughs> you, know, you, you know what I did with these young kids and, and young kids are in their twenties too, you know, and not just 16, 17 year old baristas where I went through and gave them the pitch during training. And I always spent an hour out of two to three days of training where I would be in, in front of the room. Sometimes with three people going through training, other times with 30 people. Sure. And I, I would explain the, the uh, product, the people, the stores, and the community, the four points of difference. And, and you know, sometimes you get younger people kind of thinking, who is this corny old guy? And, and what's he talking about being involved in the community? And, and then I'd say something like, uh, you know, I don't really care what you do to stay involved in the community, but these are values of the company. I'd like you to take advantage of them to learn more about your involvement in the community. And they would say, well, what do you mean? What do you mean? And I said, well, how many of you have parents who uh, have diabetes, type two diabetes, you know, and three, four people raise their hands. How many of you have a grandparent that has uh, died of uh, cancer or who may have Parkinson's disease? And one or two or three people would raise their hand. And I said, well, that's the community right there. That's what I'm talking about. The people in and around your life and your family, uh, you know, and I believe this. I believe it as much today as I believed it back then. Uh, you know, I believed it back in junior high school for crying out loud. 
that, you know, we got to take care of each other one way or the other. And, and a great way to do it is having some fun with a damn good cup of coffee. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so no fooling. the parents would say, what did you do? Cause now my, my children, as they would think of it, you know, 21 year old child, right. I mean, they're, they're, they're tuned in now a little bit more. And, uh, you know, that, that is as heartwarming to me, honestly, as uh, my, my young gal, I'm keeping her name out so I don't embarrass her, but uh, who went to Japan for the first time, first trip, first passport, first time out of the country, first time out of the state. Right. Uh, you know, it, so there's so many uh, wonderful things when you start a business. Doesn't mean there aren't bad, awful things and you don't feel, feel it on a day-to-day basis. You do. It's a given those things will happen. You know, we've been... Uh, now two or three months into this whole, uh, well, it's, it's a soft opening in society, but right. Coming out of this, uh, human, we don't have the human aspect that has been, uh, a given, right? We, it's, it's, it's something we expect. And what you're describing right there are human stories. And so that's really impressive to hear how how is this whole coronavirus lockdown everything how has that affected how you're living your you know your life these days well boy there's about 50 answers there aren't there right yeah with you and everybody else uh, we're we're trying to notwithstanding the uh the the lockdown uh or or the goals of a lockdown which initially were only flatten the curve and kind right. of get control of this thing and of course the goalposts keep to see, seem to keep moving, but that's another exactly. whole show. Yep. Um, which incidentally, I'm happy to talk to you about, but I've got a very definite <laughs> opinion about that. You know, the um, so does my co-host. <laughs> I yeah. think that you guys would have a long conversation about that. Well, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, just digress a moment. We we talk to friends of ours or or children of friends of ours. Children, they're 35 years old. Right. So they're not feeding peanut butter to their kids. Well, why wouldn't you feed peanut butter to your kids? Well, how do I know they don't have a, a peanut butter allergy or peanut allergy? I said, well, first of all, they probably wouldn't have a peanut allergy if you gave them peanut butter as a kid. We used to eat dirt. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, we put dirt in our mouth. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so, it, you know, it's another whole deal. So what we've tried, my wife and I have tried to do is, is uh, first of all, make sure we have enough wine to last us. So we, we, there's no doubt about it. I've signed up for... Uh, uh, a full session of Jenny Craig, and I suspect I'll sign up for a full session of Betty Ford. <laughs> but, um, the, uh, the, re- the reality is... In that order, of course. Yeah, exactly. In that order. Life as normal as possible in an abnormal time. And, and our f- responsibility, first and foremost in our lives, and I'm sure in yours and other people's, is, is to make sure our kids are okay. And in our case, we have two young grandchildren. Make sure they're all good, they're taken care of, and uh, not doing anything foolish. But here's going to be something that's maybe an interesting concept. Uh, as I've said to my wife in the beginning, there's at least one good thing that's going to come out of this. I typically say the world, but I'm going to make it the United States, but I mean the world. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, if it's a world that's 99.9% of people are finally going to understand a little bit more about basic hygiene. Oh, gee, if I wash my hands, it's not just for the waiter coming out of the restaurant, right? Employees wash your hands. You know, how about if you just wash your hands? You know, you don't even have to sing happy birthday twice. No. So, so basic hygiene, I think, is going to be a wonderful uh, byproduct of this whole thing. And again, you know, we drank out of hoses. We ate dirt. We ate peanut butter. We did all these things. We, you know, my wife and I were laughing too because our parents, our mothers, 
when Brucey e. Benson down the street or somebody up on Capitol Hill where my wife grew up got the measles or the or uh, the chickenpox, we were told to go there immediately. Go over there and get it. Build up your immunity. Get it over with. Let's get all you kids, you know, you know, sick at one time and get it done. Okay. Right. Next subject. And so I I uh, I won't digress too much here, but I I hesitate to think that we're uh, we're fighting this herd immunity thing. Uh, in, in such a, a negative way that it's going to hurt us long term. And of course, uh, with this sort of thing comes opportunity. And as, as both Ed and I have said in, the, in multiple times on, on our episodes, uh, you can either panic or look at the negative or you can look at the opportunity pivot and small businesses can pivot better than anybody and they should be able to pivot because uh, they're a small business and they, they can act quickly and swiftly when they see yeah. a, a need to do that. I think uh, that the tough thing is, you know, um, you know, we're three nights a week or four nights a week. We typically, you know, up to two months ago would eat out, you know, we're, we're, we're empty nesters as they say, although I don't right. think myself that way because our kids are around us all the time. Right. But we, um, we eat out three, four nights a week. And, and then two of the remaining three nights uh, we eat in the food we bought out. And then one night or two nights a week we may cook, you know, right. Uh, but uh, so now we're still trying to support all of our friends, restaurants, all of our, uh, you know, all the wineries, of course, tongue and cheek aside, and to make sure everybody's around when the dust clears here, because uh, I don't think we're ever going to be the same, sadly. And, and so as much as we can maintain our normal existence, and you know what, uh, not to have to put a plug in for something like this, but tip, 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 tip. Yeah, right. Because small business owners, you know, mom and pop uh, restaurants, particularly, uh, you know, they need every penny they can get uh, to help stay in business. So when the tide turns and thankfully soon the doors are opening where we're going to be able to go in and sit down at a restaurant, but it's not just restaurants, it's dry cleaners. I oh, mean, we have absolutely. a problem with dry cleaners. Uh, it, it's every small business. And as you know, better than most, uh, you know, the majority of small, the majority of businesses transacted via small businesses in the United States. Right. And those are the people we need to take care of. Uh, so you were actually talking a lot there for a while when you went public and you had shareholders. It's been written that you have had too much loyalty. And I know you're a very loyal person top to bottom, but you had too much loyalty to your shareholders. Now, this comes up an awful lot in business. Should the shareholders or employees carry a higher priority? Well, in my, my life experience and everything I've done, they're equal. Yeah. They're absolutely equal. And, uh, you know, the, the employees and taking care of them in tough times and making sure uh, they're compensated and making sure they had, we had health, anybody that had over 20 hours a week on the schedule, they got uh, health care, partial health care paid. That was unheard of when we first started doing it. And, uh, you know, so you really got to take care of your employees because if you take care of your employees, then they collectively take care of the shareholders because everybody takes care of each other. You know, so I mean, it's a it's a vicious circle, but tongue in cheek aside, it's it's a good vicious circle. Um, and and I think uh, at the end of the day, well, we never and I kind of missed something there with the with that tongue in cheek. Uh, what mm -hmm. friends of mine who are much older and I call it the World Wide Web. <laughs> and I tell them, guys, it's not called that. It hasn't been called that for 25 years. As a matter of fact, back then it wasn't even called that. It's WWW. But anyway, I digress on that. The, uh, uh, you know, the, the reality is, is that we became a public company, not by doing an IPO, but by passing the, the, uh, 
the minimum uh, uh, requirements to be a public company and and to operate under the scrutiny of public company uh, uh, mandates. Uh, so while we never had the pleasure to be able to go public and reap the benefits of public companies with the capital markets, right. As the result of the number of shareholders we had, and some of that was my doing, unfortunately, in the and I'm saying this tongue in cheek, when we'd give uh, shares away to our employees at Christmas time. Again, never one share of of Treasury stock went to an employee. It all came out of my wife's and our uh, majority holdings. You know, we said, "Hey, my real estate background is half a deal is better than no deal." Sure. And I felt that same way about uh, about uh, giving our employees stock if they knew it was coming from us. They thought about it differently than if it was coming from some vault over there where somebody just pulled a certificate out and handed it to them. Right, right. Uh, but the, uh, you know, the, the, the reality is, is that we also were pushed into a public company realm uh, right about the same time when, when I said, you know, we're big enough now, I need to bring in a, a so-called professional retailer to run this business. And, uh, and I, I, you know, kind of retired from day-to-day activities, and that's in 01. So we started in 92. By 01, we had, uh, you know, again, over 100 stores domestically. And, uh, and that's when I said, you know, I can't, I'm still operating my real estate business uh, full-time. Thank God I have wonderful people there and some are still with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said, okay, now I need to, as a fiduciary for my shareholders and arguably backwards now for the employees, I need to bring somebody in that uh, that is going to run this thing day to day. Unfortunately, uh, that didn't work too well because we ended up going through a number of people who, who thought that they would be able to kind of, I don't want to say take advantage of, but uh, that's probably what I really mean, uh, you know, a small company and come in and, and kind of wrestle control. Uh, and so that wasn't beneficial for the employees or the customers really at the end of the day. The, uh, uh, but the bottom line is uh, we we're pushed to then not only start reporting like a public company and complying with all SEC requirements, uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission requirements, SEC, uh, but that was at the same time when Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, or SOX as it's known, uh, came into play. And thankfully, thankfully, we had had audited statements from day one. As crazy as it was, I said, we're only going to have one store. We're still having audited statements. Let's build this business right in case we do go to 100 stores or 1,000 stores or whatever. Now you have the systems and, uh, in place. That, exactly. That made our transition easier to a, a SOX-compliant company. But at that point, another component of being uh, a SOX compliant, SEC compliant company or, or company, Freudian, uh, you then have to bring on a lot of independent board members. And, you know, it's kind of tough to bring on. They're all good people, all well-meaning, but it's tough to bring on an independent board member who really isn't invested in the company. And no, it <laughs> nothing to do with I had Ultimately, as the story goes with the company, I had uh, tried to take the company public again in, in 2007, and you, let me go back. At first, in 2000, you may have remembered this thing some people refer to as that dot-com bubble burst. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's what we were building up to take the company public. Yeah. And when that happened, it took the market away from us. So we, we continued to hit singles and doubles you know, for about another six, seven years, and I wanted to get my shareholders a liquidity event. So we finally did a roadshow in 07 again, 07. And the market was just starting to go down into that other big abyss. Unbelievable. And uh, and my banker said to me, you know what? Yeah, we don't we don't recommend you go. We we think you have to stick it on the shelf and stay there. And then before I knew it, I uh, had bankers involved. We struck up a relationship with uh, what was Green Mountain Coffee, now Keurig Green Mountain. 
And uh, before I knew it, I made a deal for them to sell them a part of the company for $40,300,000, which was wonderful. Because it was about the same time that we got about uh, $20 million out of Telly's Coffee Japan. And uh, we gave our investors a lot of money back in a, in a, uh, a private liquidation event, if you will, a distribution. Yeah. yeah. So unlike many other companies that start up uh, who the investors get zero or 10 cents on the dollar, we get a lot of our investors, uh, their 100% of their investment back, and then uh, it graduated uh, based on the additional share price. But, uh, and it was when we sold to uh, Green Mountain, and, and even though I've been in the real estate business all my life, I got to tell you that that was one of the deals I am most pleased with, the, the way we put it together and, and how I was able to extract that much money out of Green Mountain. And that goes full circle back to the whole reason of this conversation. Right. They bought this incredible brand, Tully's Coffee, and after it closed, the CEO of Green Mountain and I had, were together and we did a little press conference and I said, the greatest thing that's going to happen here today is I have a great faith that Green Mountain is going to protect our brand. We spent all these years building this brand. It's bulletproof right now. They're going to protect it, which they did because they now own the brand. And there were a few retail stores left, which another guy who said, uh, can't get involved four or five years later after I left. Uh, decided to be a notorious uh, attorney on TV and, and uh, even said he was going to run for president. And I think I what, what is it? I think he's in jail now. <laughs> <laughs> guy named Avenatti. <laughs> who I've never had the pleasure of meeting, thankfully, but uh, uh, everybody has their own way of doing things. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you, you talk about we kept hitting singles and doubles. You consistently uh, hit singles and doubles. You're going to put uh, numbers up on the scoreboard. Absolutely. So, you know, you just keep slapping that ball around, right? Um, Absolutely. So <clears throat> we got time for a few more questions. I want to respect your time, and I really appreciate this again. Uh, talk to us a little bit about negotiating. You have done more real estate deals. Tell us a little bit about your philosophy when you go into any deal and the, and the way you negotiate. Because our our listeners, the small business owners, they have to negotiate on a daily basis sometimes. Uh, you know, little things here and there, but they all add up. Well, I'll tell you what, it absolutely, my, my first and foremost thing that I do in any negotiation, doesn't matter if I'm, you know, negotiating for a, a, you know, a dozen buns <laughs> or if I'm negotiating for a million square foot building, like one I just completed. It's, it's all the same strategy, all the same components. And you got to go in first and foremost, knowing that it needs to be a win-win because if it's not a win-win, you're not going to make the deal. Right. You know, and, and I'm not the kind where I like going in and being uh, devious and uh, I hate to use a frame, a, a frame of reference like this, but screw over your, your uh, person you're negotiating with. Um, my deal is make a lot of deals. And I have made an enormous number of deals in my real estate career, but also with Tully's Coffee. Sure. I negotiated every lease. Uh, you know, you negotiate every relationship you have with, a, with a, an employee, if you will even yeah. though HR is in charge of that when you get bigger, you know, for the early years, you're, you're the head of HR, you know, you're the CFO, you're the CEO. And in my case, uh, I was the part-time roaster. And exactly. the joke, the tongue in cheek we have is that I was a part-time barista and then it, that morphed into head barista. Right. But uh, it's, you know, you got to go into it thinking that you can't take all the chips off the table. You got to leave some for the person you're negotiating with. So everybody feels good about it. Yeah. The second part of that is so critical, I think. You know, people say to me, you're never going to negotiate with that person again. 
you know, just take it, take it, take it and run. And I said, baloney, you are going to negotiate with that person forever. Because if you never even see that guy again, there are going to be three or four or five or 10. It doesn't matter how many people who call him and go, hey, I understand you just negotiated something with O'Keefe. How was it? And if he right. says the guy's a jerk, he screwed me, I, I would never do another deal with the guy. Yeah, you might as well forget all your future deals. But if, if, if you take care of the other guy or gal that you're negotiating with, they appreciate it. And it, they especially appreciate it when they know that you could uh, really take advantage of them and you didn't. Right. It's interesting because if, if you go in with that mentality, you basically, there's deals that you'll never, ever hear about right. because of that. By the way, just don't burn bridges. No, no, no. It doesn't even if you get screwed over, you may not do a deal with that person or that entity again, but you don't have to burn that bridge, right? Right. Well, somebody says, I'm negotiating with somebody in New York or San Francisco or Chicago, and I'm never going to see that guy again. I don't really care. Well, let me tell you something. The world is not, you know, what's the expression? Is it six degrees, seven degrees? Separation. Degrees? Yeah. Whatever it is. It's one degree in my life. Oh, for sure. I mean, every time I sit down with somebody, you play the name game after a minute or two, is that, oh, from Boston? Well, Bob Jones is in Boston. Well, you know right. Bob Jones? Yeah, I know Bob Jones. <laughs> well, how do you know him? Well, I don't know. I, I met him through this other guy who was trying to make a deal, and I made the deal, and we bought the building. Or these, I'm, I, I'll tell you what, if you just assume the concept of what goes around comes around, exactly, and just, it, just submit yourself to it, knowing it's going to happen. My wife, to this day, she'll say, you know, you know, other people think of it as karma. You know, I try not to think of it as, as just straight karma because that's a, that, that's your hoping somebody else gets hit by the bus. My deal is what goes around comes around. And, and if you just say that and you accept it, and in my life of business in 35, 40 years, it, it, it happens. One way or the other, it happens. You know, if you, we have talked a lot about this in the last couple of weeks, but to, to give and to serve without expectation for return. And if you get in the habit of that, if you can change that paradigm to that's what you're doing, you know, a lot of good comes from it, but you do it without that expectation. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's an amazing if, paradigm. If, if you do it because you're hoping it's going to happen and you're trying to finagle it to happen, it never happens. Nope. If you nope. do it, I hate to use a word like this in business, but if you do it innocently, it happens every time. It's amazing. Uh, Tom, in your career, and I know you had them because we all do in our in business. What are some of the challenges that you ran into that you did not expect? Well, I'd probably say an easy, quick response is unethical people I was dealing with. Okay. I mean, it sounds awful given the the, the conversation we were just having and what goes around uh, comes around. But um, you know, I, I will probably tell you that um, the majority of the things that were disconcerting to me or disappointing. And those are really what challenges are, right? When you get right down to it, are things that I had total control of and I missed. Mm. Uh, you know, making decisions for the wrong reasons. Good example is I had somebody that worked with me at Tully's, and I really wanted that person to be able to stay in the game with us until we took the company public. I thought they deserved to be in the game with us to that point, and I thought that they had worked hard to help us get there. So I wanted to make sure they were there, shoulder to shoulder with them. And, and then a mentor of mine when I started my real estate company, who incidentally and coincidentally was also, also at the very same time, August of 1986, a wonderful mentor and investor with a guy named Howard Schultz and Il Giannale, which was the forerunner to what Starbucks became as we know it today, Right. Uh, said to me, he said, you know, 
Tom, when you're growing a business, the people that got you to five stores, most of the time can't get you to 10. And the people that get you to 10 stores, most of the time can't get you to 20 and so on and so forth. He says, you have to bring in the talent, regardless of how committed you are to taking care of them as human beings and, and wonderful compatriots of yours and all that kind of stuff. He says, you gotta learn how to fire people or reallocate them. Uh, one of my HR gals used to say it all the time. We need to reallocate this person because we don't have a position for their resources. <laughs> and uh, and and so if I look back, I probably, because I didn't want to reallocate the resources or I didn't want to uh, remove them from the responsibility, I probably should have done it sooner with many people than I did, yeah. but that's tough to do. So the, it is tough. if you said to me, what's the number one lesson? If you'd asked the question, what's the number one lesson I learned? That would be it right there. How to fire somebody who's a friend of yours, but yeah. you know they're not going to get you from 10 stores to 20 or 50 to 100 and that kind of thing. That's that's a tough lesson to learn, and uh, there are a lot of entrepreneurs out there who have no problem. They fire everybody any day; it doesn't matter. But for me, from a personal standpoint, that was the toughest lesson for me to learn. And, and I took to business school classes and and a variety of other things that I do often. I, uh, you know, that's the number one thing I tell them too. I said, I, I, I you got to learn how to take people out of a position of authority when they don't have the ability to exercise that authority. So uh, that actually may have just answered the question I was going to ask about advice you would give entrepreneurs and small business owners in general. Uh, does that kind of there at the top, learn how to fire? Well, yeah. In, in terms of my life experiences, professional life experiences, that again, would be my number one answer of if you said what, stack them up. So therefore I think it's a real critical thing, but I, uh, you also, the other side of that is you need to learn how to trust. Right. So you need to trust uh, people's ability to uh, brainstorm, figure it out, have them fail themselves and then come right back, but support them with their failure. You know, I mean, and not say, well, how could you have failed? You know, when, when you give them a job and they go out and they try to do it and they hit a wall, you know, then you got to go out and try to be uh, constructively uh, critical of their efforts and say, hey, you know, nobody died on this. You know, we're, we're right. all learning it together and, and go. I just think there isn't anybody more valuable on earth, I'll, I'll bring it back to the United States, than an entrepreneur. Somebody willing to risk it every day. And those are the guys that I think, and gals, obviously, who I think uh, deserve many of the accolades. We're, we're about to wrap up. Tom, thank you so very much. Appreciate the time. And uh, as always, an uh, unbelievable information. And uh, I wish you uh, continued success as we move forward. And thank you again very much for sharing some time on the Business Buffet Ingredients episode. Thank you. Thank you as well, uh, Phil. Thank you very much. Have a good one. Is social media driving you crazy with all the changes? Learn from over 20 speakers at Social Media Summit Quarter Lane as they present their social media expertise at the Croc Center in Quarter Lane, September 21st, to the 23rd. For more information or to reserve your seat today, visit smwcda.com. Now in its third year, Social Media Summit Coeur d'Alene and the Social Media Summit Inner Circle, helping you untangle the web of social media marketing. Thank you for listening to the Business Buffet Ingredients. We hope we tempted your business taste buds with something sweet. Please share this podcast with your friends and show that you are the smartest person in the room. 
Visit businessbuffet.page and sample all the flavors of the Business Buffet. We hope you eat hearty in business.